0: Hello, everyone. This is Noah and John. We are from Urban Digs. We are
1: talking Brooklyn, John. That's right. We have a special episode today of Brooklyn. Brooklyn Brooklyn-based episode. I'm really excited about it.
0: I am really excited as well. We are joined by the founder of the Carte Blanche team at Triple Mint, Aaron Seawood. Been doing business for just under 13 years. Majority of his business is in Brooklyn. Okay, and I don't want to talk much about him because he's a really cool, humble guy. He's right here, John. He's right below us. Oh, oh. Okay. surprise, surprise! Yeah, he's listening. <laughs> you know, so um, I guess if I make a mistake, he'll yell at me. But I mean, he's a really cool guy. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's just get right into it. My users, my users, my viewers want to know what's going on in Brooklyn. So tell me, high level, what's going on?
2: Um, I would well, for, first of all, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, guys, for having and to have a Talking Manhattan turn into Talking Brooklyn is is magical. So for all my Brooklyn heads, you know, this is a big moment. Um, What's happening in Brooklyn? Overall, I'd love to use the word hopeful. Um, Manhattan, no disrespect because it does some business there, feels a bit sad. Brooklyn feels like it's brimming with some optimism. Um, it's active um, on all fronts um, at varying levels, which we'll dig into, but as an overarching feel, there's an energy that's pretty palpable in Brooklyn um, for a number of reasons. So I would say overall, it's kind of hopeful and in a good space. Um, so, New Dev, there's action, rentals, you know, you're getting beat up, um, and resales are pretty moderate. So it's kind of runs the gamut, but at overarching, there's an energy that feels good in
0: Brooklyn. Yeah. And I mean, I, I looked at the data that we have for Brooklyn. Brooklyn's one of those kind of mystery markets because you now there's there's not one data source. So that gets a little tricky right over there. Um, it took us a little while to get all that compiled. But when I looked at all that, I see a much tighter relationship between inventory and demand in Brooklyn, um, much tighter, um, than there is in Manhattan. It's like a completely different market. But my question is, are you seeing this in all price points in Brooklyn? Is, is the, is the luxury sector in Brooklyn also hopeful or are they having some troubles?
2: Um, the, I, so I swim in the, in the higher end a lot, um, with some of my celebrity athlete clients, and it's definitely, uh, we're feeling the pressure for sure at the upper end. So like, if we want to break it out into your, uh, 800 to 1.2, um, which normally would be flying. It feels a bit tentative um, on the new dev side, but on the resale side is moving. Uh, if you go up to 2 million, you know, if I'm on the ground with buyers, they're ready to transact if it's the right situation. And then when you get into the 4 million and above, um, you are starting to see more action. Some of those buyers that are maybe coming back from the Hamptons or the Berkshires or wherever they may be, um, but they're still looking for a deal. So it's interesting that Overall, there's an energy, but it definitely is splicing out by neighborhood or by price point. Right, and that's a great segue into that. What neighborhoods would you say are actually doing well and which aren't? Um, So for a perfect example, I had a number of um, buyers that were moving around in, let's say Greenpoint, Bed-Stuy, Clinton Hill, and then other ones that were in the Cobble Hill, Prospect Heights, Park Slope. And that Park Slope, Cobble Hill, Side mm-hmm. um, and even Prospect Heights really buzzing, like a lot of activity, a lot of action. You know, going into a situation where you think, okay, it's an overarching buyer's market. As long as we come strong, we should be fine. And it was a little bit of uh, some dueling to be done to get some deals done. Uh, conversely, on the other side, you know, you have a penthouse in Greenpoint that maybe a touch overpriced, but not so much so that you couldn't get a deal done. And it was kind of sitting and had multiple outdoor spaces. So I found that really intriguing. So. Um, that, that should not be a brand overall because you could go project by project and find that something successful, but I'm just using it as kind of a, a broad swath, you know, if you will, you know, kind of, uh, the energy in the borough.
1: Right. And do you think that's mainly, uh, it, it divides along the price point line, Aaron, or do you think it's just, uh, uh, has something more to do with sort of the feel and the energy of the neighborhoods? I'm just curious because Brooklyn for, for many people is sort of, um, not well understood in terms of,
2: you know, how it lays out. For sure. Um, I think that it does it on both ends. So something that I found interesting that I alluded to a little bit earlier is that in that, call it 800 to a million, you know, 1.2, if you had a two bed for, uh, you know, $1 million, that's normally flying. And what we're finding is that there are buyers that, and this makes sense, are typically first-time buyers. They are concerned. Obviously, COVID is an overhang for every buyer. In addition, that's nest egg that we're talking about tapping into and job security, where they may have survived up to this point, but there's not a complete confidence that they are going to be okay. So it feels like I wanna make this move, but because rentals are getting crushed so bad and there's incentives and all of that, do I rent a little bit longer? As you get up into the $2 million mark, um, you start seeing again, like I mentioned, some real good deals like like to get a two bed plus den or a three bed for $2 million. I uh, did a deal in Prospect uh, Heights and that those buyers were ready to rock up to 2 million. They were active. They were seeing a lot of things and they were cool. Um, but the the neighborhood did play a big part because there was a, a choice between a project that was uh, Cobble Hill mm-hmm. and but not necessarily a, a block that they wanted to be on. And then you had Prospect Heights. That was a money block that I would say that just kind of met all the criteria for them. Right. And they, you know, uh, chose to go that direction. So it's really interesting, kind of how the decisions that buyers are making and why they're making them.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've heard anecdotal evidence of of two beds in Prospect Heights going for well over asking price. They just sort of suddenly bidding wars emerge. And, and I'm curious if this sort of appetite for you know compared to Manhattan, that is. So let's talk about. I think the Brooklyn price point for the two beds is slightly lower. I mean, at this point, it might be similar to some neighborhoods in Manhattan. But in general, you get you still have that value of Brooklyn. And I'm curious. Aaron, does this translate to the rental market in Brooklyn? Are, we seeing, are you seeing sort of the same um, appetite
2: for rentals in Brooklyn as you are on the sales side? Uh, we're not getting beat up like we are in Manhattan because we had a rental in Manhattan that we couldn't give away. Uh, Brooklyn is getting rocked. You're seeing, um, on average, a luxury building is going to have two months free plus OP uh, if it's a mom-and-pop townhouse type of unit obviously it's no fee, but they don't really have the room, right, to give two months free on a 12 month lease. So they have to go right to price reduction at that point. So those have been pretty hard hit, believe it or not. Sparingly here and there, what's happened overall is this, there's been a flight to quality. And so what I mean by that, and I think it's on both sides, it's from the client to the marketplace and client to agent. So for the marketplace part of it, it's really looking at like, is it priced right? Great space, renovation and location. And obviously we know that's all subjective, but we can all kind of agree there's certain areas that are considered prime and most buyers would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones commanding bidding wars, which still do exist here and there, um, if it meets that intersection. If it's not at that intersection and there's any type of quirk or it's a niche type of offering, buyers recognize it immediately They're very well versed, they're discerning, and they are not operating with any type of urgency towards it. There's this feeling of, okay, this is great. Let me see what else is happening because the interest rate is ridiculously low and could plunge further. At minimum, it's going to hold, it feels like, and these prices keep coming down. So I don't want to feel like overpay, and that's the buyer mindset. They never want to feel like they overpay. And we try to guide and say, you don't want to try to time the market. It's dangerous. Just like the stock market, you normally just get in and ride. Um, But people can't help themselves. And I can't blame them because I've seen things literally trend, you know, a quarter million down by them waiting two months. So how do you argue that, you know?
0: Yeah, and I love that you did the whole flight to quality thing. I mean, you know, when when uncertainty hits the stock market, and you mentioned the stock market, we love to talk the stock market. Um, when uncertainty <laughs> hits that, there's a flight to quality into you know defense stocks, into U.S. dollars, into U.S. Treasuries, and there's a similar phenomenon with with real estate, and and it's it's broken down by the attributes of the property, um, which you broken down so eloquently. So it's it's really amazing to hear you. Um, really, get get deep
2: into this. I, I want to ask you a question. um are are most of your deals on the buy side or the sell side? Um, we're about fifty fifty as a team. So we're a team of five. I have a head of operations and three other agents in addition to myself, mm-hmm. uh, Sorel, who focuses on buying, and then I have Noel and Shane that are more on the listing side, and I split like fifty fifty. Um, I started out very really heavy buyers early in my career. I just have, and it probably comes from my uh, prior career, which we'll talk about later. Uh, that, you know, being an advocate that a lot of times people didn't want to spend time on that side. And you're always taught in the business, you know, work with listings, work with property. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, we're, we're a real 50, 50 team. So I love that I can give the sellers the benefit of a buyer's lens and understanding what speaks to them, what resonates and what doesn't. Um, And then also be able to really advocate for a seller in that regard, knowing that. So, all right, I got, I got two questions Um, before I get to your team and how you
0: operationally Um, started that whole team and what, what, what you needed to grow um, your team. Uh, I want to talk about the message that you, that you're telling your buyers and sellers. Um, If you could just break down for me, like what do you, obviously it's a different message in Brooklyn than it is in Manhattan. Um, But if you could just give me a broad stroke about what you're telling your buyers and sellers right now, um, who are about to do transactions right now today. So these are not, these are not people that were looking a year and a half, two years and been following it. I'm talking about someone that's brand new to the market in the moment.
2: Yeah. Um, so buyers, I'm, I'm, I'm guiding them to say, listen, yes, this is I I don't even like to use the word first of all, and I'm different probably than a lot of agents, this whole term of buyer's market. I feel like most markets are dual markets because there are pockets, you know, and specifically in Brooklyn and whether it's property type or neighborhood or both that will command a bidding war and will Mm -hmm. go at a premium. And then there are others that sit there for no rhyme or reason, may have outdoor space on the face, feel like they should move and they don't. So then is that really a seller? You know, So it really depends. So that said, so how am I guiding buyers now? Is that I'm letting them know two things. Listen, this can go one of two ways. We can come up in here and we're gonna find out the motivation of the seller. We're gonna tap the energy. My job as your agent is to sense the temperature and we're going to get a sense. And, and without trying, listing agents will telegraph. And I try my best not to when I'm on the listing side to telegraph. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. If you're getting traffic, you have offers, you're confident you're going to exude that. If you haven't had someone come through the door for 12 days, it's hard to hide that. So I'm guiding them to say, listen, no one wants to um, have you come in and lowball. That doesn't mean that I want you to overpay. So what we will do is we'll start at a number that you're comfortable with. I will frame said offer with, we just want to start the conversation here. They're sincere purchasers, they're qualified, they're willing and able, but we'd like to start the conversation here. Please get me a counter if I know it's really low, right? Um, Otherwise I'm encouraging them not to do that and skip step one and go to step two so that it's an offer that's plausible so -hmm. that the listing agent feels like they have something to grab onto and go back to their seller. When I'm guiding my sellers. I'm letting them know what, what is more important to you right now? You have two choices, time or money. If you have the time, we can test the market. Um, if you have something special and we have to be able to identify it as special where it's bonafide, if it's not special, and it's solid and it's good, that's not enough for you to get cute and having only owned it for two or three years trying to raise it X amount of dollars if you haven't made any significant improvements. So we need to price right and we need to try to take advantage of a swell of buyers that are in the market, due to the interest rate, and try to create an emotional energy that will then play to your benefit because once a couple of buyers get caught into something that they love, that's when you can get the energy of competition and bid something up. Otherwise, there has been a lack of urgency overall. People want to buy if it speaks to them, if it resonates, but there's this overall feeling of, I'll do it if it's at this price, if it works. Similar to sellers that say, hey, if they meet me at my price, then I'll transact. Right. I, 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 I got to tell you. I could listen to you all day. That's and the this world. was
1: like a masterclass. It was great
2: because at the excited. end
1: of the day, it's, just, it's local, local, local. I mean, everything comes down. I mean, you look at the broader picture of things and the media represents things. Oh, everything's going to put because everyone's leaving the city. But at the end of the day, it comes down to a specific buyer, a specific seller, and a specific unit. So with that, I'll turn yeah. it back to Noah. Who's got
0: and I, well, it. I love how he broke down the sellers by time and month. Like he said, it's time and money. John, we always used to say, sellers care about two things. How much are you going to get me and how long is it going to take? That's right. Those are the only yeah. two things they care they about. They don't right? care about
1: what you're doing for the weekend. No. They, they don't, they don't okay. care where you spent your quarantine. And,
0: and in fact, that's the quickest way to lose a friend. You know what? You want to lose a friend? Go, go sell your friend's property and, and don't get them what they want and take six months or seven months or eight months. Take two listing agreements to get it and you'll see how quickly they're your friend. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like it's, it, they're looking for the most money in the time. But listen, I want to shift to the team. Real go quick, forward. before we go to the last question, John, you have something on your mind? I did.
1: I want to follow it up if I could for just one hey, quick ahead. one quick little ahead. section. So I, I, on the new development side, Aaron, where the sell side is a little bit more opaque than sort of a, a, someone who's just owned the, the place and they're selling it sort of on their own. On the new development side, what are you seeing in Brooklyn in terms of what developers just in general now, like, you know, stepping back from location, 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 just right. the developers in general, are we seeing concessions? Are we seeing price cuts? Are we seeing price raises? I mean,
2: what's, what sort of, what can you expect in that arena? No, for sure. I think that that's a super important question. Um, now you're definitely seeing concessions. I think that even if it's not on the deal sheet, it's understood that developers are paying transfer taxes. Um, they are, we're seeing deals. I won't name a specific project, but we just extracted probably close to 300 grand between like an 80,000 closing credit. You know, they wouldn't pay the mansion tax, but in effect they did because we got an $80,000 credit and we got four years of common charges and real estate taxes. Now, this is a pretty big unit. Um, There are other properties that are offering limited things. So, you know, uh, I don't do a lot of new dev. My, you know, team member, like I said, we'll get into that, does kind of the 8 to 12 unit, you know, smaller new dev. So that's kind of a very specific and particularly like in bed But if we're talking overall your bigger projects, you know, throughout the the borough, um, they are offering concessions and, you know, you're looking at it from a standpoint of they're li- they're trying to limit it, right? So if it's the bigger the developer or the bigger the, the situation, they don't want to telegraph probably because of ego, right? That they are giving all these concessions so it's kind of quiet. Um, but they'll do things like uh, half price on a parking spot if that place has parking. Or they may do one year of carrying costs and they'll do it for the next five buyers. That doesn't mean that it won't you know translate beyond that, but that's kind of what they try to box in to create some urgency. I think a big thing to know is the most venerable or vulnerable rather are gonna be ones that are not effective yet, that haven't hit 15%. The ones that um, are out the ground and within, or within six months of being out the ground, you know, those developers need to file those tax slots and get them certified and there's a backup there. So they're gonna be more motivated. Also, you're gonna have the boutique buildings as opposed to the 200 units. So if you got a guy that's got 10, 12, 26 units, He's probably got a lot of skin in the game. There's going to be a motivation there to get those units off. So you're definitely seeing kind of a lot of play there. And I think as the bigger it gets, and depending on their financial position, and again, kind of where the project is in its cycle, uh, you're seeing that level of concession relatively. John, awesome. thank you for squeezing that
1: question in. Um, no, that was like, that was like a protein shake of information right there.
2: Yeah, that was two
0: <laughs> eggs in it. You no know, carbs, I mean, just like like egg whites and steak. <laughs> Aaron. How long does this environment last?
2: That's the magic question. Um, You know, you guys, you know, with your stock game expertise could probably tell me better because there's a lot of mechanics behind real estate that impact it. Look, I think that, um, and I did it too. You know, I live in Brooklyn, love Brooklyn. My kids go to school in Brooklyn. I ended up buying a house out on the North Fork um, because it felt really like a pressure cooker. Now, I didn't leave Brooklyn, but I added on. So I think that you have a variable of people that are adding on. I think you have the first group I talked about that are maybe holding the line, waiting for shit to sink more. You have people that are absolutely uprooting. I've gotten a bunch of listings where my folks were like, we love Brooklyn, but we're going to Jersey or we're going to Connecticut or we're going somewhere else, which was really kind of amazing to me to kind of see it actually in real life happen. Um, So I think this ends when there is some level of certainty that comes back into our overall environment. The elections resolve wherever they do. Um, civil unrest and, and protest gets to a point where action is resulted and there's some comfort around that. Uh, and then in general where this pandemic or COVID, there's this feeling of okay, we, we really got it, we really have harnessed it at this point. Either there's a vaccine or there's a complete feeling of, you can go to a restaurant and not be at 25% capacity. You know, you can actually eat at the bar, sit next to the bar and have a have a drink or whatever. So yeah. my guesstimate, honestly, probably a year. That's what I think. I think I'm being conservative. I think this time next year, we'll start to feel like, oh, you know, my hope is spring, but I still feel it'll be a little bit tentative because whoever gets elected, That'll just be January. So whatever that repercussion is, is going to reverberate, I think. Yeah. So I think you're coming into end of summer, next fall. Um, so yeah, I I'm don't know. am in the same camp.
0: I'm in the same camp. I think a year, and we have maybe a little volatility before that while all the pipeline of COVID plays out and you can have your ups mm-hmm. and downs, your ups and downs for five, six months. And then I think we'll stabilize and, and get out of it. Right. Um, you're really just an elegant speaker. Um, and let's, I want to end because we're, we're going over time here, but we have one question, an agent productivity question. Um I want you to break down how you started your team operationally. Um, And if you could have any kind of uh, tips for agents
2: that are trying to navigate
0: this market, um, prepare for beyond, what would those be?
2: So starting my team, um, I failed a lot. So I will start with don't be afraid to fail, fail forward. Uh, The first key I would say is to be a great agent yourself really work on your skill set, work on your knowledge, and just being a great agent first before trying to expand. You've got to that point and you genuinely need to expand. Don't add agents. I tried to add an operations person that would optimize me and then optimize a team, but it didn't work out that way. And I'm the type of person, I'm a giver. So someone came under my wing, I started mentoring, they joined my team, but we had no ops. And then someone else joined the team because we became a magnet and people loved the energy and what was happening. And I still had no ops. You can see kind of where that went. That wasn't a successful trajectory. A lot of good things happened. I serviced my clients well, but I wasn't able to really, I wouldn't recommend building it that way. In the ideal scenario, it's where we are now, director of operations, someone that can anchor you and optimize you as an agent first, then your overflow happens and then you can build out. And you have two choices to make if you're going to build a team. I decided to be more egalitarian. I'm not a big fan of, and I say this respectfully, the hero and the minions model, where you have a superstar agent, we're the rainmakers, we make the big deals, and then you kind of pass off to underlings. It's a churn and burn, chop shop, and they go out and do their own thing, and you operate from fear that they're gonna leave anyway. I did it where I wanted to create a collective. Could I work with agents that were established that technically could start their own teams, but for whatever reason felt like they were at 80% and they were missing the 20? And could I cap them off and put the icing on their cake? And so I've been very fortunate with my team, where I thought when I brought them to my previous firm or to situations that they would just go direct and like, no, I want to work with you. And that was the hugest compliment. So I would say that creating a culture where people want to be, you don't have to fear that they're going to leave. You should understand that they need to be where wherever they need to be. So if it's with you, great. If it needs to fly, then give them the platform where they can fly where it still resonates back and you still are, have the shine because you were a part of that flight. So I think it's a lot of its mindset and how you look at things. Um, but I, that's something that I would share with people.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you got a great culture going
1: on over there. John, you have any final questions for Aaron? No, I, I love it. That's the uh, it's all love in Brooklyn sort of ethos and it's, uh, it's great. It's yeah. all love in Brooklyn. Aaron Seawood of Tripleman,
0: thank you so much. This, I, I feel like I just had an amazing breakfast. <laughs> I, feel like. I feel satisfied that's, in my brain right now that,
2: that's a huge compliment i yeah. really appreciate it um it's been such an honor to talk to you guys i'm a big fan so thank you so much for letting me set off brooklyn
0: i love it right, i appreciate you. your time aaron Seawood of triple mint that is john walkup i am noah rosenblatt we are of urban digs this was talking brooklyn and
2: we'll catch you next time next time team car blocks let's go